for uh, nearly 2,000 years now, people have annually celebrated the birth of Jesus Christ. Today, we call this celebration Christmas, and historically, God's people have made this a four-week celebration leading up to the actual day of Christmas called Advent. The word Advent just means arrival. So we're celebrating the Advent of Christ, the arrival of Christ. And the church historically has spent an entire month celebrating that, and not just one day. So at Veritas, the next four Sundays, including Christmas Sunday, will be devoted to the celebration of the Advent of Christ. And so through preaching, we will take up our church's four traditional Advent themes, which are hope and love and joy and peace. Because apart from Christ, there is no true and lasting hope. There is no true and lasting love, no true and lasting joy, no true and lasting peace. So each week I will aim through the preaching of the Word to show you that in Scripture as well. As we're going to be taking up those themes, each week I would also like to illustrate these four themes by pointing out what I would consider to be some of the most popular features of our modern Christmas celebrating. In other words, when you think of Christmas, what comes to mind? Church, not church, Christian, not Christian, just the modern celebration of Christmas. And I think some popular features are lights, trees, music, and gifts. These are common experiences for most people today around Christmas. They are common expectations that people have. They are unique to Christmas. And they each have gospel roots. So why are there lights and why are there trees in our homes? Why this music? Why the exchanging of gifts? Well, all of those popular features of the modern Christian celebration, all of those traditions have Christian roots. They have gospel roots. And so I hope each week to bring up one of those and show you how it illustrates the themes we're looking at. Hope, love, joy, and peace. Illustrated by Christmas lights. Illustrated by Christmas trees. Illustrated by Christmas music. Illustrated by Christmas gifts. 
So we'll start today with the theme of hope. That's our theme this morning. Our text is Isaiah chapter 59. So if you haven't yet opened your Bible to Isaiah 59, please do that with me now. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide, you'll find Isaiah 59 on page 399. Before I preach this sermon, we should pray. Please bow your heads with me. Our Father in heaven, thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ. And help us this season to honor your Son and celebrate his birth. That day when your light broke into the darkness. Be glorified this morning as we seek to have our hearts and minds and wills changed by you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in the book of Isaiah today. And the book of Isaiah is right about in the middle of your Bible. And that is fitting because the book of Isaiah is in the middle of God's story. The beginning of God's story is way back here first few pages in the book of Genesis. That's the beginning of the story. Isaiah's in the middle of the story. We're still in the middle of the story, but the beginning is in Genesis. We can go back to Genesis and we can read the story of creation. So God created everything. God created this world. God created the universe, he created people, he created Adam and Eve in the very beginning, the first people, and he put Adam and Eve in a beautiful garden. And he created people like Adam and Eve, like you and me, to love him and enjoy him. And God created the first people, Adam and Eve, to love him and enjoy him. And they did for a while. And most of you know how the story moves forward. One day, a dragon came into the garden. Or we know him as the devil. Or Satan. Or the snake. He came into the garden and very easily he convinced the first people that they would be much happier running their own lives apart from God. And for a moment, we read about it in Genesis chapter 3, something very sad happened. They doubted God, their king, And they believed the devil, they disobeyed, and they ate the fruit from the one tree that God forbid. They sinned. And when they sinned, it messed up everything. Everything. It made a mess of everything. 
It messed up their hearts. It messed up the world. And most significantly, it messed up their relationships with God. So what happens next in the story? Well, as you would expect a good and just and loving king to do, God came down and he confronted Adam and Eve. And they ran and they hid and they blamed and they made excuses. They were ashamed of what they had done. They were guilty for what they had done. And they remembered what God had told them would happen if they stopped loving Him and enjoying Him and obeying Him. God warned them what would happen if they went their own way. He warned them what would happen if they sinned. Remember God told them, Disobey me and you will surely die. But God came down and surprised them. He kicked them out of the garden. There were consequences, many of them, for what they had done. He kicked them out of the garden, but he did not kick them out of his heart. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, so the very beginning of our Bible, just after this sin has entered the world, just after everything had been messed up, God made a promise to them. And the promise He made to them was that He would one day send a snake crusher. Or a dragon slayer. Or a rescuer. A redeemer. Jesus is the rescuer. He is the snake crusher. He is the dragon slayer. And Christmas is the celebration of His birth. That is why Christmas is such a big deal. That's the background. That's the story behind the story. That is why Christmas is such a big deal. Santa's garbage compared to Jesus. That's why Christmas is a big deal. That's why Christians should make a big deal of Christmas. Christmas marks the fulfillment of God's promise to send a rescuer to save his people. He promised, he promised, he promised. Are you going to send him? Are you going to send him? Are you going to send him? He's here. He's here. So it was the fulfillment of His promise to send a rescuer to save His people. So we're in Isaiah. The book of Isaiah was written by a prophet, one of many, whom God sent between the promise made 
and the promise kept. The promise made in Genesis 3.15, I will send a rescuer. And then he keeps telling his people, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And then that promise was kept when Jesus was born. But in between, there's a lot of prophets, there's a lot of preachers, there's a lot of mouthpieces of God that he sent. Isaiah was one of them. And he was sent by God to remind his people, to challenge his people, to encourage God's people in the middle of the story while they are waiting, waiting, waiting for the arrival, for the advent of Christ. So that's Isaiah. Our chapter, Isaiah 59, was written to God's people in a very dark time. Very dark. They had recently returned to their great city of Jerusalem after being exiled in Babylon, and their great city was not so great anymore. Their temple was destroyed. They had this great wall to be proud of around the city. It was destroyed. Their homes were destroyed. Things were in shambles. They were starting all over. And many of them were confused or angry and accusing God of not really loving them. But the truth was, they were not really loving God. And then here is Isaiah chapter 59. God responds to them in that darkest of times with a message of hope. Our theme today. God, through the prophet of Isaiah, responds to them in that darkest of times with a Christmas message. So if you want to know, here's an outline of our chapter today. If you want to divide up Isaiah chapter 59 into chunks. In verse 1, we find out that the people have accused God. In verses 2 through 8, God accuses the people. In verses 9 through 15, we have the people humbling themselves before God. And then finally, in verses 15 through 21, God reminds His people of His promise. Right? They're in the middle of the story between promises made and promises kept. So what do they need? Reminding, reminding, reminding. Don't forget my promise. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. So let's take those sections one at a time. Verse 1. Verse 1. The people have accused God. Let's read verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or His ear dull that it cannot hear. So verse 1 is clearly a response to an accusation. 
Can you hear the accusation the people have made? You can't save us, God. You can't hear us, God. You don't want to save us. You don't want to hear us. Can't you reach us? Can't you hear us? And why are they accusing God of this? Because they're suffering. By nature, we think suffering does not belong. And it usually comes with great temptations to doubt God's power and God's goodness. And if you've suffered, you have been tempted to doubt God's power or God's goodness. Christians, right? If you've suffered a lot, you've probably really been tempted to doubt that God is really powerful to change your situation. Or that God really is good to you. I mean, His goodness may be this abstract thing out there, but He's not good to you. That's how it feels when you're suffering. Now remember, Isaiah 59 is being written to God's people when they are in the darkest of times. It had not gone well for them. It was not going well for them. They had fallen on very hard times. They were in a very dark place. And when people are in dark places, people like you and me and them are tempted to question God's power and God's goodness. Have you ever accused God? Have you ever accused Him? Have you ever had a charge against God? Have you ever felt unheard? Have you ever felt unreached? Can you hear me, God? Can you reach me, God? Those are dark times. Those are dark places. And listen, it is certainly God's grace when in those dark times, His light breaks through, but the darkness is also a grace. The darkness is also a grace. I could say a couple things about that. One is that God only disciplines those whom He loves. God disciplines His children. If you have children, if you love them, you discipline your children. Proverbs goes so far as to say that if you don't discipline your children, you don't really love them. It uses even more strong language. You hate the son you don't discipline. 
And we read about this in the Old Testament, and then we get to Hebrews chapter 12, and it becomes very clear that God only disciplines those whom he loves. What does that mean? It means that if God loves you, he is, and don't make it mean more than this, but it does mean at least this. It means that if God loves you, he is going to introduce pain into your life for your good. And it's going, to be, it's going to be ongoing throughout your life. There will be times where God is going to, in His sovereignty, introduce pain into your life. You have known, you are knowing, and you will know pain. And it is for your good. It is shaping you. It is forming you. It is teaching you. You will be better off because of it. You will love God more because of it. You will be more faithful because of it. Heaven will be sweeter because of it. And on and on. So the darkness is a grace. It is also the darkness. It is a setup. For your good and his glory. The darkness for a Christian, it is always a setup. It's not the end, right? It's setting you up, it's the backdrop. You can't see how God is working in it, right? He plants his footsteps in the sea, we sing in the song. Can you see footsteps that are in the sea? No, you can't, you know, like that picture of the sand with the footsteps and you can trace it and there he is following you throughout your life. If you're a good Christian, you have that like in your bathroom, right? You know what I'm talking about. It's not really like that. The song is he plants his footsteps in the sea. I mean, he's working, he's moving, and you can't see how he's working and how he's moving. And there's painful providences, but behind them he hides a smiling face. And then he breaks through. And when he breaks through, and when that light comes through, whenever that's going to be, in the midst, in the middle, when you die, I don't know. But when that light breaks through, it's so much better. It's so much sweeter. And it's against the backdrop of the darkness. It brings contrast to what he's done and what he's doing in your life. So we're not surprised by darkness. The response here is that God does not have a reaching or a hearing problem. That is not the problem. That's what verse 1, it's responding to the accusation. His arm is not short. He can reach you. His ear is not dull. He doesn't have a hearing problem. That's not the problem. So what's the problem? He responds with a counter-accusation. God does this often with his people. We make accusations, and he says, I'll see your accusation and raise you an accusation. But he's so humble, or he's so patient with us, I should say. He's so patient with us. So listen, 
verses 2 through 8, God now accuses his people. And this is not a false accusation. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Now what sins? He goes on. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. And now here's some imagery. Listen to this figurative language. They hatch adder's eggs. That's a snake. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies. And from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil. And they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. So let me ask the question again. What is the real problem? Is it that God can't hear them? Is it that God can't reach them? He started off with the answer in verse 2. Here's the real problem, friends. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. But aren't our biggest problems outside of us? I mean, isn't that what we think? Our biggest problems are outside of us. The problem is these circumstances, these locations, these relationships, these people. The problem is outside of us. Sure, I'm not perfect. And of course, I make mistakes. Everyone makes mistakes, but others are the real problem. But that's not what God says. The problem is our own wicked hearts. Do you know that today? Do you know the problem that is within? Have you noticed there is a common denominator in all your problems with other people? (laughs) That's what I see. I got a problem with this and with that and with this and with that and with this and with that. So you have a problem with all those things. That's right. 
What does God say through Isaiah? Our sins have made a separation between us and God. You could go to Romans chapter 3. Paul actually quotes Isaiah chapter 59 as he is in Romans 3 describing the entire human race. Verses 15 through 17 of Romans 3. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. This is the testimony of Scripture. The problem is not without. The problem is within. And the Bible goes on and on. Isaiah 53, 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has gone his own way. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned. You and I have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. Ecclesiastes 7, 20, there is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And we say silly things like follow your heart. In Romans chapter 3, 10 through 12, this is so sweeping. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So this is what God is saying in his counter-accusation in Isaiah 59. The issue between us and God is not God's inability or God's indifference. It is our iniquity. That's the problem. Now, believe it or not, there is very good news if that's the problem. If that's not the problem, and the problem is just others, then I'm in trouble. I cannot change others. Verses 9 through 15. Here's the third section. And we'll see that the people humble themselves before God. This sounds like a confession from the people, or at least Isaiah on behalf of the people. Confession is agreeing with God. That's what it means to confess. It is agreeing with God. Coming clean with God. You have said this. Think of the verses we just read. I see it. I believe it. I agree. I confess. So listen as their their hearts maybe are being turned here. Therefore, verse 9, justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. 
we moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. So there's their condition. They're describing. They're at the bottom. And they see that. They're feeling hopeless. How many of you have felt like this? Have you felt hopeless like this? Why are they in this condition? Let's keep reading. Do they still think it's because God can't reach them or hear them? I think there's been a change. Listen to what they say. For, okay, so we're in that condition. This is why. Because for our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. You hear them coming into agreement with God now? For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. They are saying we are to blame. It's like David in Psalm 51, 3. For I know my transgressions and my sins are ever before me. Do you know your transgressions? Are your sins ever before you? Your sins should be ever before you. In this life, they should be eclipsed by the cross, and your gaze should turn from sin to the cross and to Christ, but your sins should always be before you. You should know your weaknesses, you should confess your sin. You should turn in faith and repent from your sin. You should fight sin. As John Owen said, kill sin or it will be killing you. They're agreeing with God. They're seeing the problem within. There is no hope in themselves. That's not going to be the answer. I hope you know this morning that your hope should not be in yourself. I know you've said things and, and you've heard things and maybe enjoyed things like believe in yourself. And there may be something sort of good in that Sometimes, I'm not sure what it is, 
But if believing in yourself means hoping in yourself. I hope you see from God's word this morning. That that will not go well. There's nothing in ourselves to give us hope. That means there's nothing in others to give us hope. That's not where our hope belongs. That's not where our trust belongs. This is why we're so happy at Christmas. Because Jesus is the object of our hope. So here's this last section, finally, verses 15 through 21. And this is a message of hope. We should be prepared for this now, I hope. God reminds his people of his promise in verses 15 through 21. God reminds his people of his promise. It is the promise he made back in Genesis 3. He's been reminding of them ever since. He is going to send a rescuer, a redeemer. I'll show you this in these verses if you don't see it already. The Lord saw it. Second half of verse 15. And it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation. That's God saying, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to rescue them. His own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. Think of Jesus now. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Jesus comes armed with judgment and mercy. Holds those weapons, if you will, in his hands. And the Lord Jesus is and he definitely will be on that last day, fearful. But he also comes to rescue and to redeem. Verse 20 again, a redeemer will come to Zion. That's Jesus. That's hope. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression. That's you. Verse 21. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. 
my spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Here was the message of hope for God's people in Isaiah chapter 59. The Redeemer is coming. That was their message of hope. He was patient again. He reminded them of the promise again. The Redeemer will come to Zion. What is the message of hope today? The Redeemer has come. So to God's people in the middle of the story out of exile, back in Jerusalem, darkest of days, the Redeemer is coming. The Redeemer is coming. To those of us that are here today, the message of hope is the Redeemer has come. That is exactly what we're celebrating at Christmas. The Redeemer has come. Isn't that what we were singing about in all of these songs this morning? The fact that the Redeemer has come. That promise God made in Genesis chapter 3, that promise He kept reminding His people of and did again in Isaiah chapter 59, God kept that promise. The Redeemer came. In conclusion, You remember those gospel-rooted, church-started hallmarks of our yearly Christmas celebrations that I talked about at the beginning? So today, at least over the next few weeks, where can we look this Christmas season to be reminded of the hope? That's what we're talking about today. Where can we look this Christmas season to be reminded of the hope we have in Christ? Here's a clue. Let me read to you part of the reading that we're doing this month together in our worship services. It's in Isaiah chapter 9. Here's the clue. The question is, where can we look this Christmas season to be reminded of of the hope we have in Christ? Is there a tradition? Is there a popular feature in our modern celebration that could scream this to us over and over again this month? There is. We could be reminded of this hope we have in Christ. Here's what Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, and then verse 6 and 7 says, and I'll bet you'll be able to answer the question. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, 
of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. This hope that we find in Christ is illustrated to us by the millions of lights that brighten our cold winter nights. On our homes, on our trees, on our Advent wreaths. John chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Friends, this is what the lights are about at Christmas. That may not be what everybody means when they put lights on their house. It should mean that for you. And it is what light in the Advent season is supposed to mean. It's what is historically meant for the church and for Christians. We're remembering that Jesus is the light of the world. And he broke into the darkness. And so you could drive around. You can see millions of lights this month. Be reminded of Jesus when you see these lights. Shame on you if you don't have Christmas lights on your house. (laughs) Not seriously. We have lights on our house. We have... Uh, a couple Christmas trees in the house with lights on them. There's a, a Christmas tree in each of the kids' bedrooms, and they have lights on them. And we love to drive around and look at Christmas lights. And we have an Advent wreath, and we started celebrating Advent last night. And on this wreath are five candles, and the last one will be lit on Christmas morning. But we have a tradition where we turn off all the lights. Get the room as dark as we can. And then last night, I think it was Peyton, helped Reed light that first candle. And it's an illustration. It means something significant. We're reminded that this world is a dark place. But that Christ has come. And he is the light of the world. When you see lights this Christmas, be reminded that when Jesus was born, the light of God broke into the darkness. Because the light of God has broken into the darkness, you and I have hope. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, help us to to be sensitive to your glory Help us to be mindful day in and day out of your glory. God, would you remind us through your word and by your spirit and through your people all that you have done for us.
so that we would be the thankful and grateful and joyful Christians we should be. God, with everything that we will be focused on this month in a, a season that is chaotic for many of us here, oh God, help us not to lose sight of you and to remember that what we are celebrating is the sending of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we may have hope through his death and resurrection. We love you and give you all praise, glory, and honor. In Jesus' name, amen.